welcomed here by JT. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell our audience a little bit about Join? Hi, yeah, uh, my name is John Sopanis, JT. I'm the CEO of Join Social Media. We are a new social network built on cryptocurrency. Uh, we're also building our own metaverse to rival Facebook's metaverse. Um, and we also allow users to turn all of their content into NFTs. So social media, crypto, NFTs, metaverse, that's Join. Uh, yeah, and, that, and that's what we're here to talk about today. So where did the inspiration come from to create this kind of platform? Did you have any kind of formative experiences that kind of led to the creation of Join? Or did you always see yourself as an entrepreneur? Uh, were there any careers that sort of interested you elsewhere? Yeah, so like after uni, I did a, I had an economics degree, but I pivoted into cybersecurity uh, at, at Deloitte. I started my career at Deloitte. I did two years there. I have a bit of a problem with authority. So I was like, damn, I don't like working with this many people. Uh, so I was, that was back in 2015, six, 2016. If you remember the GDPR, General Data Protection Reg- Regulations, I was big into privacy. And then basically between like 2016 and 2018, every time Facebook messed up, uh, the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke, Facebook was leaking all those, all the, all the data. I was the privacy and cybersecurity expert on Sky News, explaining to people why this was just terrible for democracy, for politics, for everything. And I was coming at it from a privacy angle, right? Surveillance capitalism is bad. Privacy rights are important. So I started looking at decentralized technology in 2018, trying to figure out a way to create a privacy-friendly social network that was also able to monet- could also monetize using ads, et cetera. And so that's where I came across decentralized technology. That's when I first came across crypto um, because... Uh, Brave Software, who were set up by Mozilla, created a privacy-friendly browser that as you browsed, they paid you in small amounts of crypto for the ads that you were watching, but the advertisers never got your data. So my original angle for this was Facebook is terrible, privacy rights are important, decentralized technology in crypto allows you to solve the privacy problem whilst keeping the content monetization opportunities there for creators and influencers. So that's when I started. And this was before NFTs were a thing, this was before the metaverse. And then, you know, over the last two and a half years, we've built, we've got the social network now built on decentralized technology, but with NFTs, we now have an extra layer of content monetization opportunities for influencers and users. And on top of that, I kind of got into game design more by accident than anything, but it turns out I'm pretty good at it. So I've been designing metaverses for some of the world's biggest brands and I'm now building my own. And that's how I got here. So yeah, I I didn't really plan it, but I just kind of followed the things I was interested in and and I ended up here today. So I'm actually representing the I don't person who doesn't know anything about well, knows the basics about cryptocurrency, NFTs, metaverse, basically everything you just said. Um, So coming at it more from our like change makers angle and seeing like how individuals go from, as you said, like working in a very like corporate structure as you were at Deloitte and kind of taking off the shackles for want of a better word and saying like, okay, no, I want to actually affect change in a different way. So just like taking back a bit from those like initial ideas and kind of problems that you were recognizing, how did you go from that to like, okay, now I want to 
kind of become an entrepreneur, create my own business and specifically like a social media platform coming from at that point, as you say, the kind of giants in social media, Twitter, Facebook, etc. Um, and what kind of obstacles did you face doing that? That's a hell of a question. And uh, <laughs> Right. So there was a, there's a stepping stone, right? And it's a stepping stone everyone can take. And it's a stepping stone I encourage everyone to take because ultimately if you're going to get to this level where you're dealing and building on high-level technology and you want to become an entrepreneur, you have to start somewhere, right? I start with Deloitte, big company. You, you, learn, you need to learn your trade first, right? You need to go out there and you need to get some experience. You need to understand. You have to get some hard skills. Now, after two years you start getting approached by a bunch of smaller companies, right? Recruiters come in and I worked for three tech startups before I started my own business, right? Which were similar to what I was doing at Deloitte, but with teams of 30 and 50 people, not 50,000 people, right? And when you move into a tech startup, which is like 50 people or 100 people, what happens is, look, there's lots of other things to do that you can help out with. It's not like in Deloitte where I have a very specific role where roles and responsibilities are defined. You can move into a smaller startup in your space that still uses the, the core skills you've learned, right? So this isn't a big shift in terms of your work-life balance. It's the culture in tech startups is different because everyone else can help out with all the other stuff. So when I worked with those three tech startups, Suddenly, I was in all the marketing meetings. I was in all the sales meetings. I was in all the HR meetings. And over the next two years of my career, I learned all of the fundamentals, the other parts of running a business that I would not have been able to see if I'd have stayed at Deloitte. So I think for people, you know, who are, you know, who, who are thinking to themselves, I want to work for a big law firm. I want to work for a big consultancy. But is that going to stop me from being like doing my own thing or becoming an entrepreneur, there is a natural stepping stone in between. You go and get your two, three years experience. You then move across to a much smaller company in your space. You take on extra responsibilities because you're able to do that in those smaller companies. And that meant that then gives you the skills you need if you want to set up a business because you do need firsthand experience on working on all the different aspects of the business. Where did my courage come? I mean, the thing is with me is like, I... I I truly believe, you know, I've worked, with, I've worked with some great CEOs, I'm working on some great projects. You've got to be obsessive. I mean, I'm obsessive, but you've got to be obsessive about the thing that you're doing. You've got to really care. You've got to believe, if you're setting up a business, you believe that there's a problem that needs solving and you, you believe that there's a solution that needs to exist. And for me, in those two years when I was in those tech startups, right, I was on the news, I was on Sky News screaming at people, Facebook is terrible. We need regulatory reform. This, we just need to burn this thing to the ground. Like Regulators need to get involved. And I was, you know, as an advocate for GDPR and privacy law and everything, and, you know, the, the, the regulators, I truly believed that it was possible. But, you know, the regulators didn't do anything because they got bought out, right? And if you truly care, I care about, I care about I, privacy rights is my thing, and I'm working in the industry, and you realize the problem that isn't going to be solved because of corruption. I was like, how the heck can I get up tomorrow morning and continue to work in this industry? That, that was so intolerable to me. I had no other option. I was like, I just have to go replace it. And when I told people that, they said, oh, you, you, you're crazy. You're absolutely crazy. What are you talking about? You got no money. You got no experience. First time founder. 
how taking on the world's biggest company, how on earth are you going to do that? And I was like, because it would be morally con- unconscionable for me not to. So like, you've got to really, really believe that there is something worth fixing in order for you to become an entrepreneur. I, you know, I always had a problem with authority and I thought one day I might be a CEO, but the opportunity never presented itself until suddenly it was the only thing that I could do. So like, you know, and I feel like, you know, a lot of businesses fail, but they fail because the people behind them aren't obsessive enough or care deeply enough about the thing they're trying to solve. And I think that's the difference. Like, look, if you have a great idea and something you care about, you're the right person to start a business. If you don't have something you care about that deeply enough yet, then you're not in that position. But the good thing about experience, right? You start loving things that you get good at and it takes time to get good at things. That's why you need that experience first. It's why making that sacrifice in your early 20s. I know there's a lot of disaffected students who get a little bit scared about the big, scary corporate world. You've got to put those three, five years in. And what you do in those three, five years is you find out how the world works. You see all the problems around you. And if you're in that environment and you can't see problems worth fixing, then, you know, maybe entrepreneurship isn't for you. But the world is broken in a lot of different places. And if you can't see where it's broken, you're not paying attention. But, you know, the question for you is, do you care enough uh, to go and do something about it? And I think that's, I mean, that's just it for me. I think that's such a, like, unique perspective because I think young entrepreneurs often get the like just try you know you're going to have a lot of failures before you get to a successful idea but actually saying no see your kind of beginnings of your career as a bit of a mining exercise like see the problems see where you can find solutions and then take the step I think it's a lot more manageable than just being like oh just you know try your hat and see what happens which I think as you say a lot of disaffected students kind of aren't willing to buy into yeah that. and that's why you know I know we'll probably talk about Elon later but the whole culture around like it's terrible advice to tell people who have not yet started careers to just quit everything to ignore the man and just like go out there and do their own thing with what with what experience you talk about how I set up my business right what do you need to start a business you need money I don't have any money so my first eight weeks, I, I, I came here to Greece. I created a PowerPoint presentation that just had the word join on it. And I got a couple of slides. And I sent it out to a bunch of my LinkedIn contacts who worked with me in the privacy space. And I was like, will anyone give me 5,000 for half a percent equity in this idea I have? Will anyone so that I can work on this for a few months? And I must have messaged like 200 people and three people came back and gave me 5,000 each. And that 15,000 that I got, took me through the the first six months where I could develop the concept and just like get to a point where I was then able to go and ask for more money. But the point is that first step of me being able to go out to a bunch of professionals and say, Hey, will you give me 5,000 for an idea I've got? I needed, who are you? What have you done? I'm like, I'm a privacy guy. I care about privacy. You are also a privacy professional. You care about privacy. At that point, when I don't have anything else, no experience, right? The only people who are going to give you your first seed investment pre-seed investment, right? Pre-pre-seed investment is are people who care about what you care about and can see that you're credible about the thing you care about, right? And, and that's a necessary first step. If you're just some dude that like, if you just come out of uni and you're like, oh, I'm going to set up a protein powder business because people need protein and people are like, why you? And you're like, <sighs> just like it's not the way it's not smart it's not smart you need to get some experience you need to have build up a small professional network of people with similar like 
there are, you know, every industry has tens of thousands of like-minded professionals working in it. You know, the, you have to take the ego out of it. You can't, you can't progress anywhere in an industry without support from at least a few others in your industry who can say, Oh yeah, that is a good idea. If you're trying to set up a protein powder business and you don't have at least one credible like gym professional who's like, yeah, this actually is a really good idea because there's a gap here or whatever it is, then you, it's just not the right thing for you at that point. So, you know, you, this is just academic. Like you need to be intellectually engaged with the problem and you need to have people around you that want to engage with that problem because that's how you get people to care. That's also just how you raise money. And at the end of the day, that's what businesses need. Before you make revenue, you know, I, I'm, I still haven't made any revenue. I'm two and a half years into this business, right? I've raised a load of investment. We've not made a single penny. The point is you need to be able to convince them that the thing you're doing is right. You need to be able to show progress and you need to build up a team of people who advocate for you and say, look, this is a really good idea and, you know, that's the way you should do it. Okay, so moving from kind of recognizing problems and wanting to solve them to the kind of specific problem that Join is trying to solve, um, I just wanted to get an understanding of kind of how you see, if we can call it the traditional social media landscape, how you saw it kind of then when you were just starting out and how you see it now going into 2022. And I know you have this idea of like the big six problems. And I was just wondering if you could kind of elaborate on that. Yeah. So it's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, when I, I told you when I started this business as a first time founder, I was very idealistic. Some might call me naive. I might call me, I might call three years ago me naive actually. Because I was like, look, there is a problem. With, with Facebook, the problems are fake accounts, fake news, privacy, content monetization, and exploitative algorithms, and it's unsafe for kids, right? Six humongous problems. Cambridge Analytica screwed everyone by taking advantage of those problems, destroyed all of the political system, took over a bunch of governments. Ugh, like, bad, right? Really bad. So then I was like, this is really scary, but it's just a problem. So my, you know, I told you that first PowerPoint that I put together on day one, join on the first page, and I had six slides in my deck. And I was like, right, fake accounts. There exists digital ID verification technology. It's really simple, right? I don't know if you've done it for a bank or whatever. It's like 30 seconds, takes a little selfie. I was like, that exists. So I was like, I can, like 80% of fake news on Facebook comes from mass proliferation of fake news, disinformation, and hate speech by botnets of fake accounts, which Facebook know exists and have never removed deliberately, right? So I was like, right, step one, get rid of fake accounts, digital ID verification technology. Two, fake news. I was like, well, the fake account problem gets rid of most of it, but, you know, maybe NewsGuard. NewsGuard are a company. They provide uh, labeling for the quality of journalism out of 100. They have nine journalistic criteria. Every single publication on the internet gets a score. I was like, right, we're just going to blacklist everything under 80 out of 100. I was like, cool. Fake, fake news dealt with. Privacy. Decentralized technology, build a social network on uh, on, on a crypto where every single account and wallet is decentralized, all the data is encrypted, and the advertisers never get the data, but they can consent to advertisements. Uh, exploitative algorithm, that's actually the, the smartest thing I've come up with. I've came up with um, customizable algorithm controls. So Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, you, you can't control your algorithm, right? You can't choose what you see and when. So like I've built one touch controls where you can 
essentially create your own algorithms, import and export other people's algorithms, and you can schedule different algorithms to basically be on your feed at different times of day. So like in the morning, if you're going to work, I need to catch up on news and politics, my news and politics algorithms there. And then in the evening, I want to watch cat videos and sports videos right when I'm going to sleep, that's fine. I just, I, I created those controls. We won best ethical AI project to fix the internet hackathon in New York for that last year. That's where my big 100,000 came from, actually. We won a big hackathon for that. And then Safe for Kids, uh, super awesome. They're a company that does child privacy-friendly advertising, kid fluencing, brilliant organization. All the big world's brand, uh, children's brands trust them. So I built, like, building a social network with them. That's where I started in 2018. I was like, six problems, six solutions, put them together. But now, 2022, when I started, crypto wasn't massively a thing, but NFTs didn't exist and the metaverse didn't exist. And the race has changed, right? Because all of that stuff that I just talked about, investors don't actually care that much about. And they don't care that much about it because they don't want to be involved in solving a lot of social political problems because a lot of guys with money who are above them are invested in not solving those problems. That's been my biggest problem over the last three years, right? But with NFTs and the metaverse, this is just a content monetization opportunity for creators, for influencers, and for brands. And so now, because we're talking about money, cold, hard cash, investors give a shit. So I've pivoted the way that I think about or at least I explained and the metaverse and NFTs to providing equal content monetization opportunities for everyone. And that, you know, res public, you know, if you were getting 10 cents per like on your you know, micro-tipping at the one-cent level every time ResPublica puts out an article. You know, I'm redistributing 25% of my ad revenue in real time to the users, and then the users can just go and spend that by tipping and unlocking content from, like, from, from publications like yourself. So the way I look at social media now, like the race that's on with the big social net networks and NFTs and crypto is who can provide the best content monetization opportunities for influencers and for brands. That's kind of the, their focus. The third one is for users, for normal users, right? Because if you think about YouTube and Facebook, if you have less than a million followers, you get no monetization opportunities basically at all. So they have like a, what's the curve? It's, it's, a, you know, it's an unequal distribution of revenue. Their revenue sharing agreements prioritize people with larger audiences, smaller ones. But for me, I have a flat curve, right? And then that, for me, is going to allow me to onboard a ton of micro-influencers, a ton of like users like artists, local journalists, um, who, you know, if you, you know, if you, if you get a thousand views of, a, you make a hundred quid per article from like a thousand small tips of 10 cents, that puts money back into grassroots journalism. That keeps, you know, local artists alive and stuff. And you got to understand that a lot of the reason Facebook and YouTube don't provide those content monetization opportunities for smaller influencers is because that grassroots art, grassroots journalism is a threat to them. So content monetization, you know, this, the new battle is content monetization, NFTs and metaverse. So content monetization, we're all fighting for the influencers and the brands. I'm the only one really fighting for the users and the small artists and small influencers. But I also have the other two, that's fine. The second one, NFTs, um, I think it's like a NFT. Okay. So like the way NFT market started, if you, I don't know if you've seen, right? The ape JPEGs, you know, that people are just buying JPEGs of stuff on third party platforms 
like NFT auction places or like websites where you just buy JPEGs and you buy, uh, like you could buy like Jack Dorsey's tweet, but it doesn't make sense if you don't have like meaning, like what makes an NFT valuable? What makes anything valuable? Scarcity, right? Supply and demand. If you can't restrict supply of something, is it really that valuable? So like the way the NFT marketplace started off is just like, you know, a way for kind of bad guys to pay each other. But I think if you're looking at like, if NFTs are supposed to grow in value over time, you want it them to be involved with a community that's also growing over time. So with me, I have my own social network. So the NFTs that exist within the social network, I can gate, for instance, you know, you release this podcast as, a, as an interview, we can create, we can make it so that 10,000 people watch it at any one time. We create 10,000 of them. We sell all 10,000 of them for like 10 cents each. So what would make a grand off it. Once everyone has watched it, they can then choose to sell that NFT, sell the access so that someone else can watch it. But what happens if this is actually an amazing podcast and everyone's like, man, you've got to really watch this podcast. Suddenly everyone is, might be willing to pay a bit more than 10p for it. So I know within a social network, think about, what about viral trends? You know the Harlem, remember the Harlem Shake? You're not too young for the Harlem Shake. So you remember the Harlem Shake? Yes. God, yes. I thought I was getting old then. Yeah? <laughs> but imagine, imagine if the original Harlem Shake video was an NFT, right? And it was like 10,000 minted, and like 10,000 people watch it, and then the challenge goes viral. How much would the original Harlem Shake video be worth? Too much. Within the social network. People would buy, you pay a hundred, a thousand, 10 grand. People are spending millions on this stuff to own pieces of history. Essentially, that's what these, you know, there's the, there's, you buy it as an investment asset when you think it's going to go up in price and sell it, fine. But a lot of the people who end up buying it at the high prices, right? And that's really where the revenue is going from. Who are the people that buy it at really high prices and keep them? Those people are really just trying to buy a little bit of history in the same way that they collect baseball cards, in the same way that you collect Pokemon cards, you know, sneakers uh so in order to get to that top level of revenue you know it has to be used it has to be valuable at that high level and you know that's the harlem shade video you know if i'm talking about join you know you could see why the like in 2022 claiming that you had that you still own the original harlem shade video and there's only 10,000 of them so only 10,000 people within join could ever watch it at one time that actually owning that video would be really really valuable so, so with NFTs, the current structure of the market, it's all, all over the place, right? Fragmented. It's third, you're, you're going to third-party websites to buy access to JPEGs that don't really have a community built around them. They're just JPEGs. And so for me, because I've got my own social network, I'm able to create value and scarcity and exclusivity through community. So I feel like I've made NFTs useful and valuable, and I don't think that they're valuable elsewhere. Uh, I think, and then, the, so, so, the, so then that's how I'm winning the NFT stuff. Oh, can I just ask a really silly Finally. question? Finally. Yes. Yes. So, about NFTs. So you discussed this Harlem Shake video and I completely understand what you're on about with that. But much like the Harlem Shake video, what stops NFTs from being basically recreated? Well, I, I have a policy. It's, 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 that's, a great, that's a great question. And I thought about it. So I have an agreement. If you upload, so if you want to upload an, a con, um, uh, an NFT on join. The agreement is you don't post it anywhere else. 
And if it does get posted anywhere else, then what happens is you lose the NFT revenue and it comes down. That's the policy. So like, it's, it's uh, you know, like, look, obviously like a JPEG, someone can just copy and paste it and upload it somewhere else on the internet. That doesn't make it valuable, right? But I think if you're talking about like why content creators would specifically post content and build communities, for me, I know that the NFTs only become useful if you can gate off who has access to them. So the agreement here is, right, you want to monetize NFTs on join. Great, you've posted your video. That's an NFT. If you post it anywhere else, it's, you, it's you take the NFT down. Yeah, because, because it doesn't become valuable because then what you're doing, you know, it's, and that's really important actually because that's a really good screen for bad people, right? Because people who are not, who do not believe in the value of their content and the way that it interacts with community and like, that what should be the natural NFT revenue stream, people who are doing it, well, people who are buying and selling NFTs to pay off yeah. illegal bills, let's call them that, uh, would, never, would, would never agree to this. So like, it's a really good screening policy for me because then the only people that will end up posting these organic NFTs and growing them within join are people who actually understand, like the content they're creating has value to the community. It's not just a, the Guggenheim online, if you catch my drift. I do, I do. Thank you so much. That was a really, really in-depth and insightful insight into um, Join and how it all works. I was just wondering, though, um, how does Join stay alert and respond to any new problems that sort of come up from this, like, traditional social media? Well, it's funny, isn't it? When you're small, so the thing about being small, you can pivot very quickly. So, like, you know, I was supposed to launch, like, nine months ago, 12 months ago, and then nine months ago, NFTs come up. And, and then I started thinking about Metaverse. And like the problem with them, it was, it, it was a lot of, it would cost a lot of money to pivot, right? But at the end of the day, because I was so small, I'm, I'm plugged in every single day to everything that's going on. And the moment that something new comes up, I come up with a proposal, a proposition. I take it straight to my investors and I take it to new investors, right? So, you know, I've had to continuously pivot this business. And the thing is with NFTs and Metaverse is like, I had to pivot it really hard. But here's the thing about, you know, remember when I started this business, I was able to ask privacy people for privacy money because I'd done privacy and had been on the news talking about privacy, right? This time I'm asking people for Metaverse money, which is game design money, but I have no experience in game design. So what did I do? I went and designed games for the world's biggest brands over the summer. I built three metaverses. Don't ask me how I got those gigs. But my God, I basically just put myself out there to an invest that investor who runs, you know, three of the world's biggest high luxury brands. And I've been talking about the metaverse. Honestly, I'd spoke to this guy in last February, last February before metaverse was a thing. I asked him for 100 grand and I thought I was going to get the money. And about 40 minutes into the call, I could tell he was not going to give me this money. So I start panicking. And for the last 20 minutes, I go on this ramble. I'm like, yeah, but I've got this, this vision and the future. Of, it's going to be this metaverse. And it's basically, if you remember Club Penguin, and if you remember like Fortnite, you're going to put those together and we're going to have this metaverse idea. And he was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Bye, bye, bye. Put the phone down. And uh, five months later, I get a phone call. Five months later, I get a phone call. And he's like, yeah, so one of the world's biggest luxury fashion brands has just called me up and it said, look, um, Gucci have just done a project in the, in the metaverse 
and they just sold a bunch of digital t-shirts for like $40 million in 48 hours. Lil Nas X did the concert. Everyone turned up. 20 million people turned up to this Lil Nas X concert in Roblox. They were like, what the hell's the metaverse? Can we also do it? And, and the guy that I spoke to, he called me up. He was like, it's, it's been a while. Uh, so these guys have just come to me. You're the only person that I've heard in the last five months say the word metaverse. What, like, what, what can what we do? <laughs> right? And so, and so what I did, and I mean this, because the thing about business, man, it's about, look, you've got to take opportunities when they come. So I immediately like, right, he at the moment knows nothing. This opportunity has come up. I get five, my, by the way, yeah, so it's a makeup brand, but like basically I knew nothing about the product. So I get I get five girlfriends over and we do a full day workshop immediately. I'm like, how do we make makeup into how do we turn makeup into a metaverse? Right. And I spend the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I build this like 20 slide deck and I build this metaverse, this game, this world that I think would be good. And bear in mind, I've never designed a game before in my life. And I, I play games, but I don't, I've never designed one. But I went through and we really worked through, like, we designed this game and I, and I sent it to him and then he sent it to the client and they loved it. And now, you know, it's a nine mil project and I run it and I run all the other metaverse projects and I got money for my own, right? And that all came out of nothing, right? That's me taking, like, someone comes on an opportunity, I don't have this, you know, and I just decided to go and do the work try and do the work and send it to people who give a shit. And now suddenly I'm like one of the world's best game designers without ever studying game design or having ever designed a game in my life. The art uh, of the hustle. <laughs> pardon? I said the art of the hustle. The art of the hustle, yeah. You fake it till you make it, baby. That's it. That's all it is, fake it till you make it. But like, you know, you, you just got to be tapped in. I think, you know, a lot of people... You know, I did economics and I did cybersecurity and then I went to data privacy and then I moved to social media and then I moved to... But, you know, you, you don't want to put yourself in a box because, like, at the end of the day, well, it's just the world is full of just work that needs to be done and you, you can't limit yourself to kind of one lane. And, and for me, like, I saw the importance of it and that's where the market was going. And so I just said to myself, right, I just have to be this guy, right? The, the only option, if I'm going to beat Facebook at the Metaverse game, is just to be that guy. So, you know, mentally, psychologically, that's what I did. And, and it's kind of worked out for me. Yeah, no, it's insane. That's, I think you've done such amazing work as well. Um, and, you know, since we've come into the new year, you know, new year, new me, what are the goals for 2022 that you've set for yourself, for, you know, join and beyond, like, tell us a little bit about it, you know, join the kids. Is this ongoing? Have there been any interesting obstacles that you'd love to let our listeners, you know, hear about? Yeah. So the good, so 2022 for me is the year of the metaverse, right? I've got five metaverses launching. Uh, first of all, the, you know, the big brands in Roblox and Sandbox, like, and I hope these games are going to be well received. I mean, we've got some, some crazy celebs that are going to be launching the games and I've spoken with them and they like the games concepts and the way they're being built. So for me, I want the games I've designed to be good. And I'm, that's what I'm working on the next three, four months, right? I'm full-time working with game developers to get this stuff off the ground. And then obviously, join, and then after that comes Join Metaverse. Join Metaverse is going to be based in Greece. I, I live here in Athens and it's got like a, 
you know, the home is like the Acropolis and there's Mount Olympus and there's the underworld. And it's going to be really, really cool. So like, mm, I want to build a metaverse that is just sick and that is really fun and that's better than Facebook's. That's my 2022 goals. I want, and, but you know, apart from that, I, honestly, this is the year for gaming for me because what I've realized is that, look, with social media, right? You know, I've got all the, best feature you know i've got the features that solve all the problems but tiktok can just throw like billions of dollars of chinese nation state money at it and do silly dances with no distinguishing features and become the biggest social network in the world it's very difficult to distinguish to like social media users you know good and bad but with gaming you can't convince a gamer that a bad game is a good game right and if my whole thing this whole time is like I'm making good design choices. I'm making ethical design choices. I'm making design choices that make games fun and fair and functional, not stupidly addictive like freemium gaming and yada, 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 right? So like with gaming, I know that my philosophy, you, you can't fake this stuff with gamers. You can't because uh, people just won't stay there. They won't play it. It's very different. People, when they're in games, they are very active and passionately, you know, in emotionally invested in their environment with social media not so much so like yeah i mean for me this year is about pivoting to gaming becoming one of the world's best game designers and you know like i want to be the metaverse guy and I, I need to prove to people that what mark and you know what zuckerberg is building is is terrible so I, it's like i'm starting from scratch all over again you know i was screaming at facebook before about privacy and social media and now i've got to do exactly the same thing with metaverse but this time i'm coming with my own so like I don't, have you watched Don't Look Up yet? No, it's yeah. on oh. You've got to go watch it. But basically, the scene where Bash Life, Mark Zuckerberg, destroys DiCaprio, right? We emotionally, like, just rips DiCaprio a new one. You know, that's kind of where I was in 2016. But 2022 is, like, I'm sat on the other side of the table with my own machine and, like, yeah, I mean, I have to, like yeah, this is the year where we really, you know, we're going to market, we're going to war, we're going to, we're going to put this out there publicly and, you know, we're going to see what the people think of it. That's amazing. Oh, exciting stuff. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. It's scary. It's also scary. I, I, I'm very nervous, like, let me tell you. Yeah, but it's good to be excited about those things. I think if you weren't feeling nervous, you'd be a bit stupid, frankly, because, you know, there is so much at stake. And also, you know, it's a very big project that you've decided to take on and a very big problem as well. I mean, as you already know, I'm sure. Um, yeah. And moving on to uh, Changemaker questions, just because, like, we really do think that you're such an inspiration and we do think that obviously you have so much to give in terms of advice and, you know, so much experience to share. Um, so what does a typical day look like for you? <laughs> what does a typical day look like? Can I even say this on camera? Uh, no, I'm joking. Uh, honestly, I'm, I live in Athens, right? I wake up, I have my Greek coffee, first of all. I can't do anything without coffee. Uh, then I, I spend like two, three hours on my laptop. Mostly just, I'll do emails in the morning. I'll take a massive long lunch. I'm, so I'm, a morning, I'm, an, I'm a morning person and a late night person. So in the middle of the day, I basically can't do anything. So like, I'll get up at like 7.30, 8 a.m. every morning just because that's when I get up. I'll have my coffee. I'll work for two, three hours. I'll just do email. I never do proper work in the morning. I just do like admin stuff. Then I'll literally take like 12 till five off. I'll go for a big lunch. I'll go, go out, have a walk, go play some football, have a nap. And then in the evening, I'll get down to proper work. For, for me, a lot of that is I'm building a lot of 
pitch decks. You know, this is why I say about people at the end of the day, if you want to run business, if you want to run a business, everything is run by PowerPoint. Everything's run by pitch decks. Everything's run by, you know, can you put a tight two pager together? Can you put a tight two page document together? It's perfectly formatted. It's, you know, perfect right time. So, you know, my evenings are spent making deliverables. You learn how to do those deliverables at consultancies. Uh, you know, that's the big difference. I would say like, you know, it's, my hard years in consulting mean that I can do a PowerPoint deck in three hours and it takes someone a week to do. And that's why I talk about, you know, building up those hard skills in, those, in that early part of your career. When you get to this point, you know, I've, you know, I had those five metaverse briefs from some of the world's biggest companies. Each one's a 20 page slide deck. I've got all five of them done in two weeks. So like, but you know, a lot of the, you say a typical day, I'd say maybe half my days like that. And half my days. I just stay at home and game. I, I literally, you know, sometimes I don't have anything on. I don't say anything, but being a CEO, I have a very flexible lifestyle. Uh, but the thing is, when I have work to do, I, you know, I, I pull out 20 hour days and, you know, I hit deadlines, but it's, it changes every single week. But yeah, like in the morning, admin, take the day off in the evening, do serious work. And yeah, that, that's, that's how I do things. Okay, so other than the Greek coffee, um, our second change maker question is, do you have any habits or routines that you swear by? Do I, oh God, do I have routines? What do you think? Uh, uh, mm. Honestly, no, I don't do routine. I hate, I hate authority. I hate structure. I don't do routines. I don't plan. This is the thing is like, if you want, I'm a, so I'm a long-term strategic thinker, right? You need to be with this type of business. I know where I'm going, but I don't know where I'm going to be tomorrow. And I literally live every day, like my mindset. I, like, I barely think about where I'm at in two hours, right? I just, I, I, I do it. I'm very, very, very spontaneous. I, I listen to my body. I listen to my mind. And the reason that's important is the first nine months I started this business, I was very bad at it. And the reason was because I'd bloody done, you know, I did, did my time, 10 years in London, two years in New York, working for these big companies. I tried to set the business up in London and within like five weeks, I had so much pressure and negativity and just, just haters, man, just haters coming from all sides, making me feel bad about the amount of stuff I was doing, like telling me that it wasn't possible. Also, when you're in London, that type of environment, like things need to be done every single day. In startups, things take weeks at a time. Nothing ever takes as long as you think it's going to do. And plans change all the time. Now, if you're not used to that, my first nine months, I was beating myself up about it all the time. And I was like, every single time I'd make a plan, I was like, right, this is what next week's going to look like. It's what next month's going to look like. And then I get there and then that's not what happened. I just like, it really ate me up because I was like, I'm not on track. Then you start to realize that's the gig. <laughs> and when you realize that's the gig, you know, I've, I've got the best versions of plans I can do and I've got the work I want to do today. But, you know, I just had a message this morning. You know, I thought my five big met, I've got an opportunity that's just come through that's even bigger than the five that I've just done. It's absolutely massive and it's immediate. So I, you know, I planned my whole day today to go out and absolutely smash out some work that I'm really a bit late for. And now I've got to completely reschedule. And, you know, before today, you know, that would have fucked me up because I've been like, but now it's like, that's just the gig. So I think mentally, you know, I'm a very, I'm a long-term planner, but, and then, but I'm also a very like day-to-day -day person. So I just do like that. That's how I think. Yeah. That's how, that's how I do it. So I don't have so routines or habits. Be totally flexible. And okay. mentally it, it's really hard because like 
I know somebody, I've got friends with like severe anxiety and stuff who like, if I tell, if, if I change plans for them, they physically can't do it. So I understand that like, that is a real thing. You know, my mom was like that. My mom, you know, we like, you know, we're going to Burger King and it says we're going to McDonald's. She'd freak out, like not go. Like, I get it. But you just can't, you can't be that person when you're running a business. You can't. Right. So okay. what do you think makes you a change maker? Uh, there is a problem that I would like to see changed. That is, and and I've built, and I'm not just someone that's saying because that's the point, right? I thought I was a change maker when I was on the news telling people that this was bad because what I thought I was doing was encouraging other people to make change. But then what happened was the yeah, regulators got bought out and no one else was doing the work. So the thing that makes you a change maker is you've got a problem you need to solve and then you actually go do the work to solve it. That's it. Okay, so I think this is our penultimate question. What is okay. the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? Ooh, <laughs> I, I get a lot of bad advice. Fuck, oh my God. Um, okay, the worst piece of advice I've ever gotten, it's the worst piece of advice for anyone in the business, right? And I've had this from so many, so many investors, right? What do you think 95% of the investors who saw my original pitch deck with six slides in said to me? They were like, you're trying to boil the ocean in, te in technology, right? There's this bullshit philosophy and fucking Elon Musk promotes it as well. In technology, if you're going to start a business, find a problem, but find a niche within an industry, like, like one area, and then specialize on solving the one problem. And then that will allow you to branch out into your industry. So like, if you're starting a tech startup, they were like, find the most important thing you want to solve, the one most important thing, go and solve that. And then that will allow you to find a, like a pocket in the market. And then that will allow you then to grow. And that's bullshit because the problem for me is I had privacy, fake news, fake accounts, content monetization. Kids say all in one. And I'm like, look, if you don't solve all six of these at the same time, it's like having a boat with a hole in it. And they're like, oh, you're trying to boil the ocean. You should specialize in private. Like go and become a privacy business and go and pitch privacy investors. Go and be a crypto business, pitch crypto investors, and then branch out. And uh, just join would not be what it is today if I'd have taken that advice. And I knew it, but I had to, for, for a year and a half, be broke, basically, really, really short on money because no one could believe that I was able to, like, out-design Facebook at the top level, say, like, look, like, this is what Facebook's got. They're the world's biggest company. This is how you go better than them from the beginning. And no one believed it. But then that's the point is, like, if you, if you don't do that, innovation never happens, right? If you're just like, oh, go and specialize and make a small part of something that already exists better, that's not the same as make the whole game better. And like, if, if, if every, if you wanted to actually be a proper change maker, if you're going to take over an industry, redefine what is good, that's the worst advice you could get. But let me tell you that every single person that starts a business in tech will get that advice from most of their investors and you need to not listen to it. This is bullshit. Okay, thank you so, so much for joining us today on Respublica and for giving joining us... us. We joined each other, eh? Wow. Um, you got such a comprehensive insight into Join <laughs> and also being an entrepreneur because that was really, really great. And it's really good to know that, you know, flexibility is at the core of most things. We do need to kind of have a little bit of 
you know, more pragmatism maybe when we're approaching some projects. So again, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's been really phenomenal to talk to you. And I really hope that you stay tuned for this Changemakers project um, where we'll be interviewing a load of, um, you know, founders, and, you know, from all different areas uh, around the block. And if Natasha, you have any final words that you want to add? Just to say a big thank you for kicking off the new year and for all of your inspiring words and unusual but very helpful advice. I think you really have a very unique take on things and it's good for our listeners to hear that and not just kind of run through the education mill and keep hearing the same thing over and over again and wonder why they're not getting anywhere. Yeah, well, that's why those people ain't running. You know, I get it. But I, look, and that's also like, you know, go back to 1984. I'll leave you with this bit of advice, right? You know, like, like what, what, George Orwell in 1984, how do you escape you speak? How, and the whole thing he talks about is like speaking your truth. And speaking your truth is finding your own language, right? That is so important, right? Because every time I think about the problem, Every time I'm explaining, you know, my philosophy, I meet people where they are, which is why I said we could have this conversation without, you know, without you knowing anything really about cryptos and NFTs is like every time I speak to someone, I try and figure out what it is that they know and what are the words that I need to say to explain specifically to them for them to understand what is going on. And never give the same speech twice, ever. And that, and especially given what Join is about and who we're taking on, right? If you're repeating speeches, repeating, repeating arguments, commit, it's, it's, that's, that's how you destroy innovation. That's how you destroy like any sort of creative thinking. You know, thought leadership and speaking your truth is literally using unique language every single time you try and explain and solve a problem. Uh, and yeah, and I feel that's that's the thing I'd leave you with. That's great. Thank you so so much.